Good morning. If you ever noticed on the bulletin, there's a place on the on the um, right right in the middle. <clears throat> it says sermon notes. Just a FYI, this morning you're gonna have an opportunity to write something in there, so you might want to have that ready. Taking notes of sermons is a is a great discipline, a way to be able to remind you what you heard on Sunday morning and kind of refer to it throughout the week for your devotional life. So, just a little hint for today. Last week in our series, we looked at how the Good Samaritan in Jesus' famous parable uh, modeled the practice of immersion, being willing to, to get below the surface into the messiness of life with people in our everyday lives. We also named some obstacles to immersion. And finally, we, we actually considered some practical examples of what it might look like to begin the process of immersing. So remember that the first, first the Samaritans saw the victim, truly saw, noticed him in his distress, and then was willing to cross the road, which we called immersion. So a multi-step process, and today we come to a third step. Today, today we actually come to the reason we named the series Waging Peace and not simply Making Peace. Jesus talks about peacemaking. Sometimes though, to bring about peace involves doing something more, and the, the best verb for that is to wage peace. The gospel passage we just heard this morning from the Sermon on the Mount hints at this, but here's the reality. Peacemaking can be a, long, a lifelong journey of discipleship. It can be really part and parcel of what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ to be a pilgrim with Jesus on this journey. But sometimes it will feel nearly impossible to make peace because of injustice, because of violence. And in these situations, it's not going to simply be a case of putting ourselves in the right place or crossing the road but, or getting under the surface. It's going to be something more than immersion. It will be what John Huckins and Jer Swigert call contending. Waging peace involves contending with powers and systems that perpetuate injustice and or violence to innocent people. Contending. And we can see contending aspects in our parable from the last two weeks. The Good Samaritan, I spoke about seven actions that the Samaritan took after the choice to cross the road. I, that, that those seven actions were actually a systematic undoing of what had been done or not done to the victim and for the victim. First by the robbers and then by the priest and then by the Levite. Seven actions line by line in the story and those actions outlined some excellent aspects of what it means to contend in waging peace. 
So you probably remember the story, but let me briefly read it one more time, this time from the translation, the message by Eugene Peterson, whom actually we are praying for. Eugene is um, in hospice care, and uh, this man who has had a huge impact on so many of us, including me and Dan, um, but continues to have an amazing ministry through his books and the translation called The Message. Uh, We're praying for him and his family during this time. But here's the Good Samaritan from the message, Luke chapter 10. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, they beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite, religious man, showed up, but also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take good care of him if it costs any more, Put it on my bill, I'll pay you on my way back. All right, there are seven aspects or moves that the Samaritan made here, and I'm going to just cover these. Here's your opportunity to take some notes. Seven moves or seven actions of contending that the Samaritan takes here. First, the Samaritan bandages the victim's wounds, crosses the road, gets in the ditch, and starts to work, representing a willingness to lower one's self to another's level. Actually, to get your hands dirty. This leveling or lowering is often the first step necessary for many of us to get to the place of contending. Giving first aid is a very personal act. It's very intimate. It's the kind of thing our nurses are doing right now in the village of Jogale. Tom and, and uh, Brenda, I mean, Todd Layton's sister, Tammy Antonio, is, is uh, they're, they're giving first aid. They're actually, they're, they're probably working in or around the, the, the clinic for the first time. It's very exciting. But there's a, there's a reason medical work has always been so important in Christian mission. It's, it's a way of contending <clears throat> that carries with it exquisite opportunities to live out the love of Jesus. And it involves getting to the level of the person being served. And we see medical people do th- doing this, and it is lovely. I will never forget the time that my mother, who was elderly in her 80s, came and visited us, I think it was for a for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I don't know, she started really feeling badly at our house and she was just not well and we were really worried about her. And I, I was just thinking, what am I gonna do? Um, she, you know, she was living down in Shoreline at the time, she was up here in Marysville, we were having a holiday and she just was not doing well. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna call Dr. Hal and just you know, see what, what, what do I need to do here? And in typical Dr. Hal fashion, he says, um, I'm coming over. <laughs> So he shows up, and my mom is sitting in one of our wingback chairs. If you've ever been in our living room, you're sitting in one of our wingback chairs. And um, so this is like my mom sitting here. 
And Dr. Howe did this. He got down on his knee, and he was this close to her, and he was talking to her like, you know, one foot from her, from her face, and just was tender and, and, and asking her questions. And I, I just kind of stepped back, and I remember my eyes just kind of welling up, and just thinking, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Not just because she was my, my mom, but because here's this man who, who, you know, taking time out of his busy holiday um, schedule, come in, and he gets down on the level of this, this woman and is just caring for her in, the, in a way that is just levels him to her. It was just incredible. This is part of what contending involves, getting down and leveling and, and, and being willing to not see ourselves in any way above other people. Does that make sense? That's the first move. The second move that the Samaritan makes is the oil and the wine the Samaritan pours on the victim's wound. It's just a beautiful picture of anointing as well as healing, which involves restoring dignity to the one who was on the receiving end of the violence. It's so easy to see those who are in need as others or, or as objects, but not as humans, children whom God loves dearly. But the Samaritan, by cleansing and bandaging his wounds, brings the victim's dignity back. So first lowering ourselves and then lifting others to bring them to the dignity that they may have lost. First two moves of contending. Third, when he puts him on his own mule, he likely had to walk himself. This was a, uh, you know, it's typical to ride a mule when you're, when you're traveling. Now this shows the Samaritan's willingness to sacrifice his time and his money. We talked last week about an obstacle to immersion being busyness. To put this positively, the quality of contending is a willingness really to be inconvenienced and, and expend our own resources to see others flourish as a result of our own sacrifice or generosity. Especially those who are perhaps recently humanized <laughs> and given their dignity back. So a willingness to sacrifice our time or our money is his third move. His fourth move is that the victim was brought to an inn and cared for by the man, which shows a personal resilience and long-term commitment as part of waging peace. I think about the fact that we are now in our 12th year of ministry and mission in Senegal, and that our mission there is really based on, we're standing on the shoulders of a couple, Jim and Bev Vaughn, who were there for 24 years before us, and they were standing on the shoulders of so many others who, who went before. God is willing to go the distance for us. Are we willing to go the distance with him for others? Sometimes it just takes time. A fifth action, he paid for the man's care, showing really an understanding not only of generosity, but that his money was actually God's money to be used for God's work. We call this stewardship. You know what a steward is? A steward is someone who takes care of other people's stuff, right? So 
this is a paradigm shift that some of us really need to make. And it's, it may even be a daily decision. But whose money is in your bank account? Whose money is in your pocket? We so easily say, this is my money. I want my money to do. I want to do with my money what I'm going to do. But actually, what Jesus calls us to, what the scriptures call us to, is a whole different approach to stuff and to money. We tend to hold our money like this. Our stuff like this. A closed hand is really a recipe for scarcity. If your hands are closed, there's never gonna be enough. An open hand is the recipe for abundance. Being willing to hold it because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And to be able to offer it when it's needed. The fifth mood, the fifth move was, was generosity and stewardship. A sixth move is that he involved others in caring for the wounded man. He enlists the innkeeper for the process of caring for the victim. Can, contending can, often cannot be done solo. It just doesn't work. It's necessary for there to be a team involved. This is a beautiful way of seeing the body of Christ in action. Notice this, the oldest, the closest rather, and the most meaningful relationships of your life may be with those that you stand shoulder to shoulder with when you are contending for the kingdom of God. You will meet your best friends as you contend, as you really put your shoulder to the wheel and, and wage peace in this world. Mark my words. Finally, he promises to return. He says, I'm gonna come back and I'll pay for whatever is needed, recognizing that there are rarely quick fixes for those who wage, wish to wage peace by contending. We need to take that long view. Now granted, this is related to the fourth action, but here's another way of saying this. There are times when we need to return to earlier projects or missions because sometimes God is simply not finished. You need to be willing to look back on what we've done before and what we've been involved in before and re-engage at times. Now, okay, seven moves. This all sounds great, right? But this is where our text for today comes in. Because today we read from Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one thing to be an advocate and to contend on behalf of others. But what if it's you? What if you are the victim? What if you are the one who has just been disrespected by a backhanded slap to the face? What if you have been dragged into court unjustly? What if you were taken advantage of by someone in power? What then? Now th this is when contending gets much more difficult and really interesting. In this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, there is a surprising response to each of these affronts. When slapped, offer the other cheek. When sued for your coat, offer your cloak as well. When forced to go one mile, go a second mile. Go two. Basically, these are 
unexpected, creative responses to violence and injustice. And make no mistake about this, this is not for the faint of heart. And Jesus' teaching here is a tall order for disciples. But it's also the only good answer to impossible situations when evil is winning the day. His words, but I say to you, did you hear those this morning? But I say to you. Now, he said that right after he he said, you have heard it said. And then what's he say? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know what he's talking about here? This is an ancient law that probably predates biblical literature. It's part of the, what's called the Hammurabi Code. In Latin, it's called the Lex Talionis. Literally, the law of the tooth. <laughs> It was a crude replacement for unbridled revenge and violence. So you make somebody pay for a tooth that's lost by taking out their tooth or an eye that's lost by removing their eye. And you know, while doing this might seem crude, but but it was better (laughs) than what would have happened when there were no rules at all. Because you know what happens when there's no rules. Someone loses a tooth, they pay for it with their life. Somebody takes an eye and their family gets wiped out. Because something we know about violence is what? Violence only escalates, especially when there are no rules. But Jesus is responding to this and suggesting something different, something more than an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Something completely different because violence always and only begets violence, even if it's equalized, you know, with the the law of the tooth. tooth. Jesus is here suggesting something more, something creative, something um, surprising. He's saying, to meet justice straight on, but instead of dishing out more, I mean, meet injustice straight on, but instead of dishing out more violence, he's saying his disciples are called to respond with surprising, creative, loving actions. Now, again, this is is hard. We need to know that it's hard. And I've been trying to think of good examples of this to, to kind of lay out before us today. And it's hard to find good examples because we don't see it very often. I think we saw some of it on a societal level that was taken, uh, the actions and the approaches taken by many of the protesters during the civil rights movement. Nonviolence. It was surprising. It was sometimes confusing in the 1960s. A few of us here this morning maybe can remember this. <laughs> it's getting to be a smaller number of us who can remember the 60s. The marches that happened, the freedom riders, the lunch counter sitters, the hippies who put flowers into the barrels of soldiers' guns. 
some of this activity was inspired by the acts and the preaching of people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Sometimes where people were inspired by, by, back in those days, Mahatma Gandhi, who actually wrote later in his life that he got many of his ideas from Jesus. Interesting. But it was a tumultuous time in the 60s. And, but changes began to come about, not completely. I mean, there's still so much work to be done. It's obvious these days. But it was amazing how powerfully nonviolent acts of love spoke truth into the conflict during those days. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus taught. I think of a more recent story of a street preacher on the steps of a Christian university, his Bible in his hand. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, incredibly mean, angry words aimed at the students of this Christian university that were walking by. And what happened next was remarkable. Here's an excerpt from the book Mending the Divides by Huckins and Swigart. Quote, while the preacher may have considered his words an act of contending for the students, the content of his speech ran in sharp contrast to the teachings of Jesus. And the manner in which he chose to communicate equally contradicted the life Jesus lived. If they were to contend by not getting even, but by getting creative and love, what responses could the students initiate? In this incredibly intense moment, one of the students put his guitar over his shoulders and softly began singing, How He Loves Us. As his voice grew louder and more confident, students started trickling toward him and formed a circle around the street preacher. In unison, their voices began to rise together in this beautiful song about the endless love of God for his people. He loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh, he loves us, oh, how he loves us. And soon their voices overtook the shouting of the man and he was completely disarmed. He shrugged and gave up. No stones were thrown, no hateful words were returned, our relationships were divided. The abuser was exposed, dignity was restored, and although they, couldn't, they certainly could have, the students didn't ignore the conflict and run away. End of quote. The peace wagers engaged, contended, and lovingly, creatively won the day. I'm reminded of a quote from a Harvard intellectual and political activist who once said, justice, justice is what love looks like in public. So finally this morning we need to say this. Contending is not something that only takes place in a large scale or in public places. It can also be very personal work in the places that we live, places we work, and the places we play. My mentor, John McCullough, used to call this kind of thing taking the offense of love. In 1977 and 78, Chris and I were in our early 20s, we were college students, and we were asked to lead the music ministry of Bethany Community Church in Seattle. Chris became the choir director. I think she got $100 a week. I was a pianist, I got 25 a week. Wasn't fair. 
<laughs> but we were just, we were having so much fun leading the choir and doing it for the first time and just throwing ourselves into the ministry. If you can imagine Chris leading the choir the first time she ever led an adult choir, so much energy and so much enthusiasm. And, and um, there was this one couple, we'll call them Patty and Ken. And Ken, basically, Ken just didn't like Chris Mason. Now, how many of you feel like you really know Chris Mason? How many of you know Chris Mason? Okay, the question that comes to my mind right off the bat is, what's not to like, <laughs> right? I mean, here's this, this loving, enthusiastic, faithful, Christ-centered, bubbly person who comes with all these fantastic ideas for the choir and people start coming and it's just, you know, we're having a fantastic first year of ministry and this guy, Ken, goes to the senior pastor and says, I don't like it. I don't like her. I don't like that we have a woman in leadership. And I don't like the changes she's bringing. We're singing so much different kind of music. It's not gonna work. I don't like it. So we, we heard about this because he was quite public about the fact he didn't like it. And it created for you know, us as a young couple, it created a huge crisis for us because it was just, you know, we were really felt called to this ministry. We really felt like you know, things were going great and suddenly everything seemed horrible. So we went and talked to Pastor John and he suggested something so counterintuitive. Uh, I'll never forget when he first said that. I just, I just remember thinking, that is crazy. He said, you know, sometimes you need to take the offense of love. And he said, do you guys know how to make apple pie? <laughs> and we said, well, I suppose. And he said, why, why don't you make a nice apple pie and just take it over to his house and just tell him how glad you are that he's in the choir and that you love him. Or just take him the pie and just say, hey, we just wanted to give this to you. We were feeling hurt. We were feeling disrespected. We did not feel like making a pie for anybody, especially him. <laughs> but... John was our pastor and our boss and our mentor and we did it anyway. Bottom line is that Patty and Ken stayed in the choir for the next 16 years of our ministry in that church at Bethany and the two of them were the most faithful and generous supporters of our ministry. It just completely flipped the whole thing on its head. Contending in that case looked a lot more like apple pie than having angry words. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he suggested turning the other cheek, offering your cloak, going the extra mile. It may involve thinking creatively. It may involve taking time to cool off and pray. Sometimes contending looks foolish in this way, this, in this world's way of seeing things. Waging peace is like that sometimes. This is who I want to be. You? Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we need your blessing today. So grateful, Lord, for the, the, the song that the choir is gonna sing as they come up, Lord, that amazing peace, deep, deep peace can come to our world if we are willing to participate with you and what you're doing. And Father, it may seem foolish, it may seem uh, to go against all rationality. Lord, I think back to what Paul was talking about this morning about fear, and so many of us are paralyzed by fear to reach out in love, which is really irrational. Jesus, I thank you that you did not only teach about waging peace, Lord, but you modeled it for us. That when those who accused you, who stripped you and beat you and eventually took your life, Lord, that you loved them in spite of that saying, Father, forgive them for they, know, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus, I wanna be like you. And sometimes it's so hard, especially, Lord, when I have just been disrespected or taken advantage of. Teach me more about this, Lord. Teach me more about your deep peace and how to wage it in this confusing world. For we pray in your name, amen.